Before we begin, just a brief disclaimer. We at ParCast do not support the beliefs of white supremacists. Although we'll be looking through the point of view of these assassins throughout the episode, we thoroughly condemn their actions and their hateful rhetoric. Thomas Martinez never felt comfortable within the order. Martinez was a white man who turned to the white supremacist group after his friend was murdered by a black man. But Tom had started to question his own racist beliefs. By 1984, he was seriously considering leaving the order. He just didn't know how. He feared that his leaders would respond with violence. In the fall of 1984, Martinez found his already shaky loyalty tested. He was about to stand trial for using counterfeit cash, which he'd gotten from the order. He'd remained tight-lipped during questioning, but the day before his trial, his lawyer delivered some bad news. The FBI had secured his phone records, and they knew his friends had been involved in a number of armored car robberies out west. Martinez's chances of a light sentence were looking less likely with every hour. All night, Martinez agonized over what to do. If he testified against the order, he'd risk a violent backlash. But if he stayed silent, he'd go to prison, protecting a cause he wasn't sure he believed in anymore. The next morning, minutes before his trial began, Martinez told his lawyer that he wanted to speak to the prosecuting attorney. He announced that he knew who killed radio personality Alan Berg. In exchange for a reduced sentence, he would tell the FBI everything. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Every week, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. Welcome to Assassinations. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode on Alan Berg, a radio host who was killed by a white supremacist group known as The Order. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Susan Allen lived in an apartment building in Denver, Colorado, coincidentally the same building as local radio host Alan Berg. On June 18, 1984, she was having a quiet night at home, catching up on her chores. On her way to the laundry room at 9.21 p.m., she heard gunshots. She ran back to her bedroom. The gunfire sounded close, and she was afraid an intruder had broken into her building. After a few minutes, when Susan didn't hear any more gunshots, she crept out of her room and called her boyfriend, Charlie McDowell. She told him, I heard a terrible noise. I think something's wrong. McDowell rushed over. As soon as he pulled into the driveway, he saw Alan Berg lying face down on the pavement, a bag of spilled groceries, and a still-lit cigarette on the ground beside him. At 9.38 p.m., McDowell called 911. When the first police officers arrived on the scene at 9.40 p.m., Berg was already dead. Given the brutality of the murder 
and the bullets that could have only come from a machine gun, they knew that this was no ordinary mugging. The automatic gunfire, coupled with Berg's reputation as a left-wing agitator, painted a clear picture for the police. Berg had most likely been assassinated by a right-wing terrorist group. They just didn't know who. The news immediately made it to the media. Shortly after 10 p.m., Rick Barber, the news reporter for KOA Radio, announced, Alan Berg has been shot. The Denver Police Department confirms he's dead. The hosts, DJs, and producers at KOA were shocked to learn of their colleague's sudden and violent death. Another host, Ken Hamblin, broadcast for several hours after the regular end of his evening show, struggling to process the news. In less than 24 hours, Allen Berg's murder was headline news across the nation. In Florida, Tom Likas of WNWS, a radio host with an abrasive style similar to Berg's, addressed his audience by saying, this kind of intimidation is not gonna work and there is not a chance I'm going to soften my opinion. Fearing copycat crimes, the police met with Denver radio personalities to give them advice on handling stalkers or threats. KOA hired security to protect the rest of their hosts from attack. Early in the investigation, the police identified David Lane, an order member who was the getaway driver as a person of interest, though they couldn't locate him in Colorado. This news made its way to the media, too. For much of the public, this was the first they'd heard about militant white supremacist groups operating in the United States. Not long after they murdered Alan Berg, Robert Matthews and Bruce Pierce resurfaced at the Order's headquarters in Medellin Falls, Washington. David Lane had gone in the other direction, heading to Philadelphia to lay low. The assassins had agreed to deny any involvement with Berg's murder even when they were among fellow Order members. Several new recruits had already expressed discomfort with the idea of assassination, and Matthews had claimed he'd abandoned that violent element of his six-step plan. Now, he had to maintain that lie to avoid a revolt. Unfortunately, Matthews failed to follow his own rules. Just a few days after the assassination, on June 22, 1984, Matthews showed off newspaper clippings about the crime to a group of order members and announced, quote, Well, buddy, we shot him. Read this. At least one of the members in attendance, Randall Rader, was deeply disturbed by Matthews' attitude. He'd been assured that the group wouldn't commit any killings. When he voiced his concern, Matthews simply shrugged and walked away. Two days later, on the other side of the country, David Lane visited a fellow Order member named Thomas Martinez at his home in Philadelphia. Lane also bragged about the assassination, saying, quote, Hell, man, I was the goddamn getaway driver. Martinez was repulsed by Lane's bragging. He, too, had been promised that the Order wouldn't assassinate anyone. After hearing that confession, Martinez just wanted to get Lane out of his house. But first, they had business to take care of. After the Order's unsuccessful first foray into counterfeiting, an experienced counterfeiter had joined the team. Since then, their fake bills had become much more believable. In addition to using the counterfeit money to finance their operations, the Order hoped they could flood the market with enough cash to devalue the dollar and destabilize the economy. 
To that end, Lane brought over $30,000 in counterfeit small bills for Martinez to spread around town. Lane told Martinez he should pass the bills out of state so they couldn't be traced back to him. Martinez accepted the cash, but he had other plans. He was going to use this money to skip town and leave the order for good. Four days later, on June 28th, Martinez used one of the counterfeit $10 bills to buy a lottery ticket at a nearby convenience store. At the time, the cashier didn't notice anything odd, and Martinez went home confident that he'd gotten away without rousing any suspicion. But that night, while closing out the store, the cashier identified a $10 bill as counterfeit. The next day, Martinez returned to the same convenience store and tried to buy another lottery ticket with a counterfeit 10. This time, the cashier noticed. He looked up and shouted, Hey, you're the guy that gave me that counterfeit money yesterday. I'm calling the cops. Martinez was no criminal mastermind. He panicked, ran out of the store, and got in his car. The cashier wrote down the make, model, and license plate number of the car, then called the police. Later that day, Martinez returned to the convenience store and tried to explain that he hadn't known the $10 bill was counterfeit. The cashier didn't buy it. He told Martinez he'd already spoken with the police. Once he got back home, Martinez called Lane and begged him for help. Instead, Lane flew into a rage that Martinez would be so reckless, spending the money in his own neighborhood instead of crossing state lines like he'd told him to. Martinez replied, quote, Look, man, I ain't going to argue with you. I'm getting rid of the rest of it. I'm through. Finally, he had a clear opportunity to leave the order. But it was already too late. That night, right after he'd finished dinner with his family, police burst into Martinez's home. In addition to the convenience store clerk, the Secret Service had heard reports of counterfeit tens from bankers all over town all traced back to Martinez. At this point, the police thought Martinez was just a small-time independent counterfeiter. Martinez didn't dispute this during questioning. He was afraid of what the order might do to him if he talked, and even more afraid of taking the rap for the murder his organization had just committed. That was just the tip of the crime iceberg. A few weeks later, on July 19th, the order staged what was then the largest armored car robbery in U.S. history. Robert Matthews and a team of order members pulled over their pickup trucks on the side of the U.S. 101 freeway near Ukiah, California. They knew an armored car filled with cash was scheduled to pass at 11.15 that morning. The car was behind schedule. They waited for almost an hour. Then at noon, they saw it approaching. As the armored car drove by, one of the order's pickup trucks pulled in front of it. Another truck drove right behind it. At a bend in the road, the truck in front slammed on its brakes. The moment the armored car came to a stop, men burst from both pickup trucks, guns aimed at the car's driver. Matthews ordered the armored car's guards to get out. He fired his gun at the top of their windows. The driver and guards finally got out of the car and Matthew's men unloaded bags of cash into their own pickup trucks. But they'd been overconfident about how quickly they could pull off the heist. Matthews had only allowed for five minutes to rob the car and flee the scene. When the job still wasn't complete after seven minutes, he started to get antsy. 
He told his men it was time to go. In his haste, Matthews left behind some of the cash and the gun he'd forgot he'd set down. He'd bought the gun legally under his own name. When police arrived on the scene, they looked up the serial number and immediately traced it back to Robert Matthews. They didn't yet realize that the man behind the armed robbery was the same man behind Allen Berg's murder. And before they could close either case, more blood would be shed. Coming up, we'll look at the standoff and trial that brought the order down. Now back to the story. When Allen Berg was murdered on June 18, 1984, it immediately became a massive news story nationwide. As the police searched for the perpetrators, every new breakthrough became a major story of its own. Even before they'd identified David Lane as a person of interest, police had immediately pegged Berg's killers as members of a white supremacist hate group. This was the first public indication that hate groups were equipped and ready to initiate a violent uprising. Independently of the investigation into Berg's murder, police were also closing in on the order for counterfeiting and robbery. No one had put it together yet that the group that had stolen nearly $4 million in the past year was also the same group that had killed Allen Berg. Within the order, tempers were flaring. Matthew's sloppy mistake, leaving his gun at the scene of a robbery, had put them all at risk. This didn't sit well with Bruce Pierce, who'd previously been scolded by Matthews for getting caught with counterfeit cash. The hypocrisy was too much for him to ignore. Their conflict came to a head in the late summer of 1984, a couple months after Allen Berg's assassination. Pierce went to Matthews' house with a plan to split the order in two. Pierce would run one cell and Matthews would run the other. He claimed that splitting the group into two smaller cells would increase security. Matthews was understandably suspicious of Pierce's loyalty. But perhaps because of these very concerns, he agreed to the plan. The Order's 20 or so members were divided into two separate organizations. This did nothing to stop police from fitting the pieces of the puzzle together. Three and a half months after Berg's assassination, they were finally about to find a link between the Order's various crimes. On October 1, 1984, Order member Tom Martinez made a deal with the FBI, offering to tell them everything he knew about Allen Berg's murder in return for a lighter counterfeiting sentence. He told the prosecuting attorney, Bucky Mansui, everything David Lane had told him about the assassination. David Lane had already been identified as a person of interest. Martinez's testimony confirmed the FBI's suspicions, finally drawing a connection between the order, the robberies and counterfeiting on the West Coast, and Allen Berg's murder. Just one day later, on October 2nd, Robert Matthews' first child was born, a daughter named Emerant. Matthews believed that white people had a moral imperative to reproduce so that other races wouldn't outnumber them. After years of trying, Matthews and his wife were unable to have children, so instead, Matthews turned to his mistress, Zilla Craig. Zilla opted for a home birth, and during her 19-hour labor, Matthews alternated between waiting at her bedside and running out to fetch food and supplies. During one of his errand runs, the morning after Emerent was born, Matthews noticed a man following him. 
Matthews had long feared that the Zionist conspiracy was after him. They seemed to have caught up with him at the worst possible time. Matthews ran into his house where Zilla was nursing their baby, then only 16 hours old. Matthews announced that the Zionist conspiracy was tailing him and he needed to leave town immediately. He promised he'd return soon to be a father to baby Emrant. Zilla was heartbroken. She didn't want her daughter to grow up without a strong Aryan father, but she believed in the cause and she believed in a dangerous Jewish conspiracy. She'd do anything to protect Matthews. So, just 16 hours after giving birth, Zilla got out of bed and got dressed in men's clothing, acting as a decoy. Matthews leaned down to kiss his newborn daughter, then slipped out through the back door. At the same time, Zilla walked out the front door, hoping to distract whoever was tailing Matthews. It worked, but the people tailing Matthews weren't part of a Jewish conspiracy. They were FBI agents. They closed in on Zilla while Matthews disappeared into the dust. He would never see his daughter again. Less than two months later, on November 24, 1984, FBI agents Arthur Hensel and Kenneth Lovin cashed in on the deal they'd struck with Tom Martinez. They wanted to find out where Matthews was staying, and they suspected Martinez could lead them right to him. Matthews knew about Martinez's arrest the previous June, but he didn't know that he'd turned informant. Ironically, in spite of all of Matthews' paranoia about a Zionist conspiracy, he trusted his own men without fail. They made plans to meet at a motel called the Capri in Portland, Oregon. From the moment his plane touched down in Portland, Martinez was nervous. He knew agents Hensel and Lovin would tail him, and he feared that his fellow order members would spot the tail and know he'd betrayed them. Robert Matthews and another order member, Gary Yarbrough, had come to pick Martinez up from the airport. As soon as Martinez got into their car, Yarbrough looked out through the back window and said he thought they were being followed. Yarbrough pulled out a gun. Martinez didn't know if the gun was intended for him or for his tail, but neither possibility was good news for him. Martinez thought this was the end. But they arrived at the Capri Motel without incident and went up to Matthew's room for a chat. During his time on the run, Matthews had remained in contact with the Order, and he had big plans to continue his white supremacist revolution. He told Martinez that it was time for their next assassination. Morris Dees was the target. Dees was a lawyer who had founded the Southern Poverty Law Center, which combated bigotry and hate groups. He'd been one of the Order's top choices of targets before they settled on Allen Berg. Matthews had believed Dees would be too hard to access since he always traveled with bodyguards. But after their success assassinating Berg, Matthews felt bolder. After they discussed the details, Matthews told Martinez to get some rest. They planned to meet at 7 a.m. the next morning for breakfast before Martinez's early flight back to Philadelphia. Martinez returned to his room. Once he was away from Matthews and Yarborough, he slipped out to a payphone and called his FBI handlers. Martinez told them everything he'd discussed with Matthews and where the order members were staying. In the middle of the night, Martinez awoke to his phone ringing. It was an FBI agent who ordered him not to leave his room. Before sunrise that morning, a SWAT team arrived at the Capri Motel. 
They evacuated everyone except Matthews, Yarbrough, and Martinez, then got in position and waited for Matthews to leave his room. They had to wait until well after 8. Matthews apparently didn't take his 7 a.m. breakfast appointment very seriously. When Matthews finally stepped out of his room, he saw an armed SWAT team member hiding behind a bush. Matthews drew his gun and fired, then ran down the driveway. Agents Hensel and Lovin pursued him, trading gunfire with Matthews. Hensel took a bullet to his leg, and Lovin shot Matthews in the hand. In the confusion, Matthews jumped a fence and disappeared. Once he was sure he'd lost the agents, he hitched a ride out of town. He made it all the way to a safe house he'd already set up in Whidbey, an island off the coast of Washington state. Matthews soon got word that Gary Yarborough had been arrested back at the hotel. He knew it was only a matter of time before the FBI closed in on him, too. He called what was left of the order and told them to join him in Whidbey. The order's final meeting was a tense affair. Matthews' close call, Yarbrough's arrest, and the arrest of a few other members led many to believe their time was running out. If Allenberg's assassination had succeeded in starting a race war, they were shaping up to be the losers. Many of the men wanted to turn themselves in and make a deal for lighter sentences. Matthews didn't want to hear it. He had his men, his anger, and a full arsenal at his disposal. He said he'd rather die than turn himself in, a declaration he'd soon have the opportunity to prove. On December 3, 1984, a little less than two weeks after Matthews fled Portland, an anonymous member of the order called the FBI from a payphone. The person said, quote, You're looking for Robert Matthews. He's here on Whidbey Island. They've got a lot of weapons and ammunition here. Within days, over 150 FBI agents arrived in Whidbey. While they congregated and investigated the island, the order went on lockdown inside the safe house, plotting their next move. They deduced that Thomas Martinez had sold them out. They resolved to murder him. Though they didn't get around to choosing a date or method, there were more pressing matters at hand. Some of the men, including Bruce Pierce and David Lane, thought it was best to flee Whidbey Island immediately and move to another safe house with more escape routes. If the law closed in, it was best to be in a location that wasn't surrounded by water on all sides. Matthews wouldn't consider it. If they were going down, they were all going down together in a final blaze of glory. This was the moment of truth. Pierce, Lane, and a few other members left. They were off Whidbey Island before the FBI team was able to surround the safe house. Matthews remained in the house with a few of his devoted followers. They may not have realized just how soon their final showdown would be. At 7 a.m. on December 7th, a SWAT team had the house surrounded. They ordered everyone inside Matthews' house to come outside. Eventually, all of the men turned themselves in peacefully, except Robert Matthews. Even when the entire order had abandoned him, he insisted that he'd commit suicide before he turned himself in. The SWAT team wasn't sure if Matthews had hostages, so they were reluctant to push. But by the next afternoon, Matthews still hadn't made a move. The team threw canisters of tear gas into the house, hoping to drive Matthews out. He didn't emerge. Neither did anyone else. 
Now confident that Matthews was alone, a team entered the house. While they spread out across the ground floor, Matthews opened fire from the second level, firing through the floorboards at the SWAT unit below. They were forced to retreat. That evening, nearly two full days after the standoff had begun, the SWAT team had had enough. They decided to fire M79 starburst flares into the house, hoping the flares would ignite the building, forcing Matthews outside. At 6.30 p.m., with fire trucks standing by, the SWAT team fired the flares. The cabin ignited. Smoke and flames spread through the house. The team waited for Matthews to emerge. Minutes passed. The flames spread to the second floor, and still, Matthews didn't leave the house. After 20 minutes, the cabin collapsed, with Matthews still inside. By now, there was no way he could have survived the fire. After the flames died down, the SWAT team found Matthews' charred corpse in what had been the house's bathroom. With the death of its leader, the order collapsed. A number of men who'd been arrested during the standoff agreed to testify and led the FBI to other members who were still at large. As the dust settled and the testimony piled up, FBI officials were shocked at the range and scope of the order's plans. Their strategic effort to bring down the U.S. government was far different from the usual M.O. of white supremacy groups. Instead of pushing for tradition and ultra-conservative reforms, they wanted a full-scale revolution. In 1985, various U.S. government agencies began a joint effort called Operation Clean Sweep to investigate hate groups. From 1985 to 1988, they targeted and arrested roughly 1,000 active members of hate groups throughout the country. As part of Operation Clean Sweep, five members of the order were charged with sedition, including Bruce Pierce and David Lane. Bruce Pierce evaded capture for nearly half a year using numerous fake identities. On March 26, 1985, he contacted a mail pickup service using a false identity the police had already caught on to. U.S. Marshals arrested him when he arrived to pick up his mail. David Lane went off the grid after Matthews' death, living in rural Virginia. But he remained in contact with another order member, Ken Loff. He didn't realize that Loff had agreed to cooperate with the FBI as part of his plea bargain. On March 29th, just three days after Bruce Pierce was arrested, Loff lured David Lane to a meeting where FBI agents were waiting to arrest him. Thanks to the order's numerous financial crimes, its members were charged under the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act, also known as RICO. All of the order's members were charged in the same trial, which listed 67 separate charges. 370 witnesses testified and 1,500 pieces of evidence were introduced. Only one week of the three-month trial was spent on Allenberg's murder. The federal government spent millions on the RICO trial. To avoid the cost of a second trial for Allenberg's murder, which fell under state jurisdiction, the federal prosecutors instead charged the assassins with the federal offense of violating Berg's civil rights. By the end of the trial in February 1986, Bruce Pierce was sentenced to 252 years in prison. David Lane received 190 years. Nearly two years after Allenberg's assassination, the order was officially no more. 
but they had left behind a legacy of fear and bloodshed that would shape America for a generation to come. Coming up, we'll take a look at the Order's dark legacy and what might have happened if Allen Berg hadn't been killed. Now, back to the story. While David Lane was serving his 190-year prison sentence, he was drawn even deeper into white supremacist activism. Before his arrest, Lane had been published in numerous white supremacist publications, and he continued his writing throughout his time in prison. One of his works, called The 14 Words, was, as one would guess, a 14-word motto for white supremacists. Quote, We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. He later followed this up with another 14 words. Quote, Because the beauty of the white Aryan woman must not perish from the earth. He also published a list of 88 precepts that was passed around among militant hate groups. Even after Lane's death in 2007, he's remained a venerated and influential figure among far-right hate groups. The Order never achieved their goal of creating a separate, whites-only nation. However, they did accomplish something that they hadn't anticipated. With ample news coverage of Allenberg's assassination, Robert Matthews' dramatic standoff with police, and their massive trial, the Order achieved national recognition. In 1984, when they killed Allen Berg, the Order only had 22 members. Even though the group dissolved in 1985, their notoriety grew exponentially. Their ideals of violent revolution influenced many white supremacist organizations who followed in their footsteps. While previous hate groups were built around public demonstrations, the Order and its descendants operated in secret to accomplish larger goals. As former Order member Thomas Martinez explained, quote, organizationally, the Klan, the Aryan nations, among others, have preached violence, but have always done so in a public way to attract members, to keep them enthusiastic and keep them contributing money. The Order, however, never engaged in demonstrations. Quite the contrary, its instructions to its members were never to express their racist beliefs publicly. From the beginning to the end, the Order's goals were to be fulfilled through purely criminal means, carried out in absolute secrecy." End quote. Prior to the Order's founding in 1983, many white supremacist groups focused on maintaining American society as it was and resisting further progress towards civil rights and equality. But the Order instituted a new era advocating for overthrowing the U.S. government as a whole and rebuilding society to their own ideals. Many militant hate groups have implemented the Order's methods of training their members with firearms and financing their activities through crime. For example, in 1987, a member of the Aryan Nations pled guilty to robbing banks in four separate states to fund terrorist activities. Likewise, Robert Matthews and the Order were among the first hate groups to target federal buildings for bombing. In 1991, a Florida white supremacist attempted to blow up a government building. In 1993, another white supremacist group plotted the bombing of several federal targets. Most famously, Timothy McVeigh bombed the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City on April 19, 1995, 
killing 168 people. All of these terrorists were inspired to some degree by the Turner Diaries, the racist novel that Matthews modeled the order around. As Morris Dees explained after the Oklahoma City bombing, the order's militancy set a clear precedent for McVeigh's act of terrorism. They published it in a book called The Order uh, in the, the Turner Diaries, and this was the, this was the incident that these groups have been waiting for to start what they consider a war. They consider McVeigh a soldier in the war. The order's acts of violence left a devastating legacy. But what if Berg hadn't been assassinated? What if the order had never gone through with their plans? What would the world look like today? We can reasonably assume that the history of far-right hate groups in America would have played out very differently. Had Berg not been assassinated, the order wouldn't have achieved the fame and notoriety they did. And it's possible that militant white supremacy would never have achieved such visibility. As for Alan Berg, he died right as provocative political radio became a mainstream phenomenon. Rush Limbaugh, a conservative radio personality, began broadcasting in August of 1988. While many liberal radio hosts also began broadcasting around this time, few achieved the same level of notoriety as their conservative counterparts. Perhaps if he'd survived, Berg could have filled that void, sparring with Rush Limbaugh on the airways. Berg was only the order's third choice of target. Let's take a moment to discuss how the world may have been different if Pierce, Lane, and Matthews had murdered one of their top two targets, Morris Dees or Norman Lear. Morris Dees was a lawyer who founded the Southern Poverty Law Center in 1971. His work centered around filing lawsuits against hate groups when criminal charges failed. For example, he successfully won suits against the KKK. Had Dees been assassinated in 1984 instead of Allen Berg, he never could have overseen some of the Southern Poverty Law Center's most notable cases. He also wouldn't have developed the Teaching Tolerance Program in 1991, a curriculum designed to educate students on equal rights issues. The other target, Norman Lear, was a television producer who made popular and progressive programs like All in the Family, Good Times, and The Jeffersons. He left the TV world in 1981 and founded a nonprofit called People for the American Way, which advanced progressive causes like education and civil rights. In 1999, President Bill Clinton awarded Lear with a National Medal of Arts. From Archie Bunker's living room in Queens to Fred Sanford's junkyard in Watts, he has employed the power of humor in the service of human understanding. His departure from traditional two-dimensional television characters was risky. It showed the enormous respect he has for the judgment, the sense, and the heart of the American people. If the order had assassinated Norman Lear instead of Allen Berg, he still would have left his television legacy, but Lear's extensive nonprofit work would have been left undone. Ironically, the order's top two choices of victims both demonstrated a greater inclination toward activism and social change than Alan Berg. While Berg agitated people he disagreed with on air, he wasn't an active social reformer. The order's assumption that Berg was a powerful figure mostly stemmed from paranoia and anti-Semitism, while Norman Lear and Morris Dees were both genuinely influential figures whose deaths would have resonated throughout political spheres. There is one other alternate possibility. If the order had opted not to assassinate Allen Berg, 
they might not have assassinated anyone at all. Robert Matthews had brought in several new recruits who expressed concerns about assassinations. And before targeting Berg, he claimed he'd abandoned his assassination plans. If he'd kept this promise, the investigation into Berg's death wouldn't have happened. But Matthews and Bruce Pierce still would have likely been arrested and prosecuted for their counterfeiting and robbery spree. Even for another crime, Matthews' arrest would likely have led the order to fracture and drift toward other white supremacy groups. But without the heavy publicity and notoriety the order gained from Berg's assassination, those other groups probably would have remained small and fringe. We wouldn't have seen the rise in militarization that spread through the far right in the 80s and 90s. However, even if the order had never assassinated Allen Berg, it's unlikely that they would have refrained from any high-profile killing for long. Matthews had already led his followers on a year-long crime spree and had invested hundreds of thousands of dollars on weapons for their coming revolution. They were already in too deep and too embroiled in hatred to back out completely. Allen Berg lived his life provoking and agitating bigots, but his death proved to be the greatest provocation of all. His assassination, ironically, served as a rallying point for violent extremism, driving even more hate groups to action. Allen Berg's murder was a tipping point for far-right activism. But the ripples it sent through culture could never have been anticipated by his assassins. Few could have predicted the impacts of a talk radio host's death. Likewise, we may never know what the world would have looked like if Allen Berg had lived. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 